1: helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. My guest today has been described as a superhero without a cape. She's passionate about serving others through the nonprofit sector and has spent most of her career there, supporting those in need in areas including multiple sclerosis and diabetes. Currently, she's in the business of making dreams come true for children battling life-threatening illnesses. As president and CEO of Make-A-Wish Alabama, she supported families through dark times by bringing the light of hope to young people, by granting wishes of all shapes and sizes. I am delighted that my friend Tracy Smith is joining me today. Tracy, welcome to Say It Skillfully.
2: Oh, thank you. Thank you, Molly. It is such a pleasure to be here with you today.
1: The pleasure is mine, my friend, and uh, I had recently the great honor of meeting and hearing from one of your wish kids and mom, and I can't wait for listeners to learn more about that. To start though, I'd love to focus the lens on you and your own journey in life. So please
2: help listeners
1: get to know you a bit, what's most shaped, who you are, what you do.
2: Oh, wow. So that could, people tell me all the time I should write a book. And so I would say this is probably the first time I've actually put the whole story and sound bites out there for the world to listen, because you think, well, who wants to hear my story? But um, it is interesting. So I guess I'll, I'll start with, I'm from Alabama, as you know, I'm, I'm the CEO of Make-A-Wish Alabama, so born and raised here in a small town in East Alabama, Anniston, Alabama. I would say it's a small town. Probably, I think it's 30,000, grew up there, um, went to college here in Alabama, but grew up I would say probably regular middle income family. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. Dad was an engineer. I'm the youngest of three girls. My oldest sister's adopted. And then two years after her, her, my mom had my other sister, and then I'm the youngest. We're all extremely close. And probably the things that a lot of things define my childhood, but when I was six years old, My dad tragically passed away from a brain aneurysm. And, you know, it's one of those things I look back on often. And, you know, I think about children that lose that um, lose their parents all the time. And I think, oh, my goodness, that's awful. That's awful for that mother. That's awful for those children. And I have to remind myself I was that kid. (laughs) That was me growing up. And it was a tragic situation. I mean, I remember the evening he had he had worked out at the YMCA, came home and complained of a headache we were all laying on the floor watching tv and he collapsed and and I just remember those moments of the neighbor my mom calling it you know, at the time there was no 911 so she called the doctor and the ambulance came and the neighbor swished, swished us away and then the next moment the next day my mom was there with she had about six or seven friends that were her childhood friends some of them were her sisters that they just grew up together And they were like my aunts. They were there to support her, to tell her three daughters that, you know, their dad's in heaven. So that was really tough. And um, I just remember my mother always telling me that my daddy always said, people can take things away from you, but they can never take away your education. So always get an education. And he was um, in the Navy. And so he had um, honorably discharged because he landed the... um, Fighter planes on on the ships, and they didn't give him proper equipment, and so he went completely deaf in one ear, partially in the next. And so, as unfortunate as that was, um, the benefits um, that the uh, government provided, I was able to go to college on the GI Bill because he was honorably discharged. So that's what set my course for. going to college and so my mom you know what is just one of the most incredible people i know she's a saint she's incredibly kind and she just trudged on through raising three daughters on her own had multiple jobs tried to keep our standard of living the same um we you know, we were able to grow up in the same neighborhood still, and then through that, she met this incredible man who became my stepfather, and he and um, they married when I think I was around twelve or thirteen. And he was this entrepreneur, had this entrepreneur spirit, and really um, helped raise me and my sisters. and And I became extremely close to him. So I was very fortunate to have two incredible. Um, fathers and I still have my incredible mom she actually lives with us right now wow. <laughs> and so, isn't that cool? so through that I went to school in Auburn University which is in Alabama um, met my husband there um, and then I actually he and I got married and I finished at University of Alabama at Birmingham so but throughout you know growing up throughout my childhood you know my stepfather was an entrepreneur we had multiple Restaurants was his thing, so we had all kind of barbecue restaurants, and um, he really taught me the art of being friendly and kind, but also hard work, and, um, you know, he would always make us work, and I just was raised by working, and so I know through that experience and through my childhood, I always knew that I wanted to be independent in the event something happened to my partner, whatever. And I always knew I wanted to be the one that um, made a difference in people's lives, but also I didn't want to depend on anybody because I saw my mother struggle with that and how life can be snatched away from you at a moment's notice. So that kind of set me on the course of having that fire in my belly to get an education and to be a career woman.
1: <laughs> so wow, <here> I am. <laughs> you are amazing. And I'm so sorry for that loss. at such an early age. Clearly, you have... Grown and been stronger for it. Do, do you recall, as the as the sisters? I mean, how did you honor your dad? I mean, that that coping skill, you know, as a young kid, is not easy, Tracy. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering how you came together. I mean, were the girls really tight about it? How did you did you talk to your dad when he was away? I'm just wondering how you handled it.
2: Yeah, you know, we all dealt and still deal with grief differently, and I I feel like I was a bit buffered because I was six my middle sister was 8 and my oldest sister was 10 and i want to say they probably got the worst hit of it because they were older and they could comprehend what was going on i mean i could comprehend it i remember the funeral res- service i remember all of those things it's interesting we all kind of remember it differently and i don't think we we've we've ever gotten to a place where we said let's talk about it because it's just so raw you know <laughs> even yeah. you know, when years later Um, But, but yes, we're all very close. We're all very different. Uh, You know, there was some rebellion through high school with my siblings and I I learned what not to do because I was the third. (laughs) So I knew what you could do to get in trouble, what you didn't have to. So um, I remember telling my mom, all right, I'm going to. I see, you know, my sisters have given you some challenges, and I see that I'm not going to do that. I, I, I see what they've done and when they get away with them, what they don't can't. But we all three are extremely close, and we're very, very close to my mom. And the, our, the irony in all of that, too, for me, um, is so I lost my dad when I was six, and I'm embarrassed to say. I don't know the exact date. My sisters always say, yeah, I can't believe you, but it's e- either April 3rd or April 5th. I can't remember it was in April. And then my stepfather, you know, years later, um, my mom marries him. We get, he, uh, is an incredible man. And I go on to get married. Have And when I was pregnant with my second child and he was diagnosed with myasthenia gravis. And so, that's a disease that, you know, you can wake up in one minute, feel fine, the next minute you can't walk. And he was slowly deteriorating. He was a big kind of a John Wayne kind of a man. And um, he had a heart attack and passed away. Um, and it was on this same exact day that my father died, like 35 years later. And so I was at the time, the executive director of the MS Society, and my sister calls me and says, SA has passed away you know, you need to get home. And I, well, I only live like an hour from my um, hometown. And so, you know, I, I, my, my husband gets, the kids get settled. I get home. And when I walk in the house and those same women that were with my mom, 35 years previously helping her through this grief was there with them, with her helping her again on the same exact day. Is that not crazy?
1: Wow. That is crazy. Your mom is just wondering. <laughs> oh my God, what a superstar she is.
2: She's she's a saint.
1: Wow. Wow. How um has that informed your own child raising? I know you you have kids aren't that old, but
2: yeah. Well, I'll tell you, you know, my husband and I talk about this all the time because we have two amazing children. And this is probably this could be a a whole separate podcast because our oldest is 25 our youngest is about to turn 19 this week and um, our oldest graduated from college he also went to Auburn he lives in Chattanooga Tennessee now and actually works in nonprofit. and then our youngest um, went to a liberal arts school here in Birmingham and visual arts is her thing but now she's at Eckerd College which is a small private college in St. Pete Florida studying marine science and what we I guess maybe through my childhood experience we just early on said we always approach our children you know, obviously very loving because we just adore them but when our oldest is a boy and he's just rambunctious and so early on you know he was always wanting to do this crazy stuff and he got into parkour and you know you we know just like oh, how many bones does he got to break and we were always worried about him and we said why, why do we always tell our kids? No, let's stop doing that. Let's tell them. Yes. As long as it's it's legal and it's not going to hurt them, let's tell them yes. And allow them to explore their curiosities and figure out what their passions are. And it was just a light bulb that went off for us. And people ask us all the time, like, what, what did you do? And I would, you know, create these wonderful human beings. And I would, and we said, you know, I think, I think the pivotal moment for us is when, you know, we would see these parents that said, no, you can't do this, or no, I'm not going to pick you up, or no, I'm not going to take you somewhere, or no, you can't do that, or if you start a sport, you got to stick it out, and we were like, no, you don't. <laughs> it's not your fault you can't drive to the mall. Of course, I'll take you. It's not your fault you can't, you know, come home at midnight. I'll change my plans." so we always said, let's be available for our children, and let's tell them yes, and let them try things. And if they don't like it, that's fine. You know, we don't want you to quit to quit, but if, and so what it instilled in them is their own passion. And our kids are incredibly passionate about our son is an accomplished professional um, whitewater kayaker and has made it on the USA team numerous times to keep competing in a world championship level, not Olympics. They don't, it's not Olympic level, but, and then our daughter's an accomplished artist and they had this passion that nothing it didn't have to be forced on them and i think it's because we created an environment for them to explore so I th- maybe that's maybe the trauma in my childhood i maybe my approach was i don't i want my children to be able to experience as much as they possibly can because who knows if i'm going to be around
1: <laughs> yeah well that's a remarkably uh to I me mean, it sounds so basic to do and it mm-hmm. sounds so obvious uh, but not really because you see you see a lot of the opposite of that uh, yeah i'm curious tracy i mean so much love in the family did you feel as a kid in school that you fit right in there or are you like popular kids sporty kid curious
2: yeah uh-huh. it's interesting because i've never been a conforming kid so I, i've always it, I'm, i was never an outcast but i I was always the one that was friends with all the cliques and all, you know, I and so I never, it wasn't that I fit in, didn't necessarily fit in, but I made a point to try to fit in with every scenario. Um, so I wasn't really athletic. My middle sister was a big into softball. I loved horses. I rode horses. Um, I loved the outdoors, but never did like really organized sports because I just, you know, I didn't like people telling me what to do. <laughs> It's like this non-conformist but um yeah I would say you, you know I, I hate to even admit this but I'm going to because I transferred we moved within our town to it to another town right nearby and we ha- I had to transfer schools and um when I was a freshman which can be traumatic you know like moving schools in a high school situation you know and and I moved to a very small school and um was the outsider and that was. Um, Hard. It was really hard to find your place, but I will say I found my place and um, one homecoming queen, which is embarrassing to say because because <laughs> I think that's so cheesy. But it was affirmation that, you know, I guess like Sally Field said, they like me. They really do like me. And it was one of those things I just organically, if I see someone that isn't in a group, I try to engage them and involve them. And I, I, I did that even in my high school life. That's just kind of part of who I am. So it wasn't that I was didn't fit in. It was um, I just tried to make a point to fit in with everybody.
1: Yeah, that's yeah. A great. I mean, your energy is like that. You're just you have a very welcoming disarming um you just just, there's a just a human kindness to you that is really great so i mean i can see why you've succeeded you know as a as an executive and so funny to say you didn't (laughs) like people telling you what to do okay that's another key characteristic here um well anything in when you think about um mistakes is too strong of a word but things that you might have done differently as you were navigating
2: school life yeah you know going back to that whole organized thing like i never was really big on sororities or clubs and in school i always i was fiercely independent and maybe that goes back to you know that I guess you can define it as trauma as a child is I didn't want to depend on anyone. I didn't feel like I needed to be with a group to, to figure out what my friends were. I was just going to navigate that on my own. And that probably it wasn't that it was harder because I have incredible friends, but, I look at my children now who do that and I encourage them to do that. And it really gave them a whole other level of experience that I didn't get because I was, you know, I'm going to do it on my own kind of thing that um, (laughs) maybe I should have been more like that. Um, Yeah. And, you know, and I was, I was one of those that was just a middle of the road student. You know, I was probably a BC student in high school, but then once I got into college and, in and I majored in business marketing with a concentration in PR and communications. And once I got into those classes that I loved, I couldn't get enough of it. And I look back now, and again, when my kids are in college and I see all these incredible classes that I would I wish I would have tapped into more and took taken advantage of being in um a university setting to have access to these wonderful educational opportunities that, you know, when you're young, you just don't know. You don't know what you don't know, you know?
1: Yeah. Believe me. Gosh, I'm like <laughs> nodding my head like you can't believe. Uh, so <laughs> where you, so, so you had this, you know, your stepdad was an entrepreneur. So you had, you know, some of that business and you were working so hard. How did you decide what to do out of school? Was that super easy for you? You knew exactly your path or how did you explore your no. career choices?
2: It was Purely accidental, because <laughs> I went to um, Auburn University, like I said, and and for those of you who don't know, that it's, it's an SEC school, and they're they're known for the veterinarian school. And I thought I wanted to be a veterinarian, and so I went there, got a job at the vet school, cleaning rat cages out and assisting, <laughs> assisting. Because again, you know, my parent, you know, my mom was single and then she married my stepfather, and they. We never went without. I mean, we we weren't poor by any means, and we never went without. But they, you know, they they struggled to help me pay through my way through college and in my living expenses, and so I always worked because you know once my first job that wasn't like babysitting and working for my family was working for Hardee's, which is a hamburger place. And when I got that first paycheck and I knew I could make my own money, I was like, Oh, I like this. Okay. I like this. So I always worked. And so I wanted to work at the vet school and I thought, well, this is something I could see if I like, and I can, you know, also, it can help me pay my bills. And, um, I did not like it <laughs> and I would look, I would observe them like doing surgery on horses and I was like yeah no I'm out I can't mm, no I thought I loved animals and want to be about was like yeah no I don't want to so I, did, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do and so I thought well a business degree would be a good you know a good solid degree I love to communicate I didn't necessarily want to focus on public relations because that was like media and broadcasting I didn't have an, an um, interest in that but I did I, I knew early on that I had that that was kind of my sweet spot Spot was connecting and communicating with people and so that's where I landed on a business degree marketing didn't want to be in sales but I loved the idea of promoting products and understanding why people buy what they do and I coupled that with communications and that's how I came up with my degree and so um, while I was in my senior year, my professor recommended me to do an internship with a specialty hospital in Birmingham, the I Foundation Hospital, um, which is now part of the University of Alabama at Birmingham, which is a, a huge medical um, hospital here in Birmingham. And I did an internship in their PR department. And so I did a lot of employee relations, public relations, and it was a nonprofit And I didn't know what a nonprofit was. And so that's where I learned about nonprofit. And as part of that hospital, there was a professional office building and housed within that office building were numerous nonprofits. There was the Alabama Lions site, which were the Lions clubs. They raised money to help people with indigent care. There was the Alabama Eye Bank, and they worked with uh, families that donated eye tissue of their loved ones for surgery. And so I started to learn about the nonprofit um, industry and applied for a job as a PR uh, representative at Alabama Lions site. So that's how I got into nonprofit. And it was purely by accident. I did not even know what it is. Now, you know, they have degrees in nonprofit. Um, And then when I learned, you know, oh, you can work for an organization that has a mission, and you can help people and help your community, then I was bit by that bug. And I thought that's, that's, I just, I've got to do that. So From there, I moved to um, Alabama iBank. That's a whole nother story. They recruited me for their um, marketing position, but it was marketing, office managing and human resources. I didn't know anything about human resources or office managing, but I took the job because I knew about marketing. And I'll tell you, that was probably a pivotal moment for me because their CEO, I worked for women and this was the first time I had to work for a man. Until this day, he's a wonderful mentor of mine, and I spent eight years there. And he and we were growing rapidly. And anything that needed to be done, I would just take it on, and he would allow me to take it on, and he would allow me to fail, and he would allow me to experiment, and was very supportive. And that's that's how I really grew into a leadership role in nonprofit um, because he really gave me that opportunity.
1: Wow, we love him. <laughs> Do you have experiences in working for women with women versus men and I'm just curious if you have any of your own, you know,
2: Tracy data points on that? I do. So <laughs> <laughs> early on when I was in school and I had a part-time job, I remember the uh, job specifically and then another position where and I and I would use I hate I really don't like the term boss The employees that work with me kid me all the time. They're like, you don't like when we call you boss. And I said, well, we're a team. But I use the word boss because these people were not leaders. They they were my bosses that I had to report to, but they in no way I would define them as leaders. And they led me, managed me and their employees by... An authoritative behavior, um, intimidation, condescending, and I just remember even when I was in school. In my mind, thinking one day I'm going to be in a leadership position, and I remember thinking I will never ever treat anyone like this. And so, what I learned from them is how not to be, <laughs> how not to be as a as a slash manager boss. And if you want to be a leader, that that's not a leader. So I, I'm, I'm thankful that I had that experience because I had. T- the two women that I worked with specifically that I remember thinking, yeah, no, they're, they're leading because of their insecurity. they're leading through their insecurities and um, egos or whatever. And I knew early on this, they taught me how not to, how not to lead. Oh, I hear this. So just listeners have heard me say this
1: before, but I'll say it again, this notion of managing work and absolutely we need to manage work, but we lead people. <laughs> Exactly. People, yeah, and it's it's just it it may sound like it's semantics of words. It's not really, right. and <laughs> and I appreciate your call out there because this is where I would invoke for folks the compassion energy when you see someone who is doing those kinds of things. We're like, oh my god, what is this? realizing that they are not in good relationship with themselves. They have insecurities and ego issues. By the way, we all do, right? We all do, yes. But but they're not able to get out of their own way. And, you know, I I, talked about this. It's just so frustrating because it can create an environment where people are under rocks being stepped on because a leader isn't able to embrace that, hey, we're all perfectly imperfect. Right? Exactly and, right. And so, you know, lucky for people to work with you.
2: But, but, but you're so right, because whenever someone behaves that way, it, it's absolutely just their insecurity surfacing or their ego or whatever. And like you said, we all have them. But the self-awareness is key. And if you're self-aware and you're humble about it, then then that's where you can grow as a person. And that's where you can grow from being manager boss or whatever you want to call it to a true leader. But if you don't do that, people that work with you will never respect you. You know, if you, if you don't acknowledge the, these areas that you, you know, that, you know, you have weakness in, or you do have insecurities. And if you yeah, it, yeah, I could talk about that all day.
1: <laughs> well, so share with folks because one of the things I love about you're so open, but I, part of this forum is helping people realize, look at, we have all messed up folks and we would be happy to share that with you. So you would mess up in new ways. So can you recall a few things that, you know, if you were to do it over again, um, as you were, you know, moving through the ranks, Tracy, that are kind of, you know, fund memories of things that you wouldn't do again.
2: (laughs) I'd love to hear. I have two really, I have two funny ones. Well, one is this, this female boss I had, and I was just like a girl Friday and I did, I didn't know how to type or anything. So I was typing with like, you know, Pecking, Um, and it was more her than me. She came in one time and said, "I just need to tell you, you will go nowhere in life if you don't stop doing that and learn how to tie." Now she could have approached me a little better and said, "Hey, if you you know if you practice and if you set your hands a a different way, you're probably getting a better rhythm and just practice, you'll get it, you'll get it, you know." And and if she would have been more (laughs) encouraging, but she wasn't, and I remember thinking. Oh yeah, I'm gonna. Well, one of these days, I'm gonna be your boss, and then see how you feel about it. I mean, that's what I was thinking in my head. But I thought, how do you really think I'm gonna learn if you're gonna come in in this gregarious way and talk to me like that? And that was the that was my first example of poor, poor um, uh, management. On her side. Now on my side, was a story that I have that is really funny. And this kind of, uh, I don't know, uh, pg thirteen fourteen is when I was, we were doing a capital campaign at the iBank and we were raising money and I created, I think 5,000 brochures to go out to our donor base to encourage them to participate in our donor campaign. And um, so hindsight, what I know I should have done is had multiple people look at it. Because, you know, when you're designing something and you look at it, you don't see everything. You know, you've looked at it so much, your eyes are just exhausted. And now now it's just standard policy for me that anything that I touch, which I don't do any of that anymore, I make sure I have three or four people that have never looked at it, look at it and give me constructive criticism. So on this piece, um, we we produced 5,000 brochures and some of the money that was raised was going – to the building that we were um, building, in addition, or purchasing, in addition to helping um, with public education for eye donations and the importance of helping people save sight. And we didn't have um, spell check during those times. This was in the eight, nineties. And so it didn't, it didn't say public education, it left the L out and it was pubic, <laughs> pubic education.
0: And that went out to
2: 5,000 donors. And so hindsight being 2020, yes, I should have not been as territorial over the design pieces I did and shared them with the inner circle. So they could have given me constructive feedback because that would have been called.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I can't even imagine when you saw
2: all those out and then you learned, whether that's just like, Oh, oh my God. So that taught me to be, um, Let yourself be vulnerable. It's better to be vulnerable within four walls and let your peers, you know, check your back before the public does. (laughs) Oh, my
1: God. That's so crazy. So talk a bit about how you would articulate how you're leading, Tracy, and then share with folks what your folks are doing at Make-A-Wish because it's off the charts. Like, I love what you do for folks.
2: Well, so I've only been with Make-A-Wish, I'm coming on, I'm two and a half years, and when I first came on board, we had minimal um, board engagement, we had the very fractured, everybody was working in silos, there was trust issues, it just, the team was incredible, the team was incredible, and they're all pretty much still there, but they, they um, there was no glue to keep them all together. And so I always describe myself, if you have the right team, the leader is really just the glue. You get out of their way, but you keep them connected. And so we came in together and I saw that there was a cultural issue or we there's no culture. And so we needed to create this culture. And so the first thing we did is we all got together as a team and I just said, what do y'all want this to be? You know, I described to them, you know, what my philosophy was and that I lead through empowerment. And as long as you're doing your job, I don't care how you do it or where you do it or when you do it. And we will give you all the tools you need to to succeed. And let's lead. I will lead the organization, not, We're not going to create policies on worst case scenarios like you can't do this. You got to do we're going to lead with best case scenarios. We're all mature. We all have a job to do. We're all motivated. And then if anybody wanes or if we start abusing this freedom and flexibility, then that's when we'll start tightening up. And we never had to do that. And so the team just really embraced that. They appreciated it. And we worked together as what did we want this culture to be? And we created culture statements and we talk about them all the time and during staff meetings and staff retreats we talk about ways we need to work together and it's just become our philosophy well it's always been my philosophy and they've embraced it and I'll say the first probably six months you know they're like who is this bozo coming you know they're like yeah you know they weren't sure and um, they they weren't sure and you know people because I am kind and I am warm and friendly and I'm like that 95% and and they and I'm like that unless you give me a reason not to be like that and and, and so it took them a while to, to recognize that I was legit and I was I was authentic and um and then after that we just have we have grown like the leadership team that I that works with me as long, as well as the other staff they are just incredible and and I have three directors that work with me that make up the leadership team. And we're all incredibly different and we lead in different ways. Um, and to see their growth and how complimentary they are of, of me and how they've said, how they've learned from me and how they've um, changed their style is the greatest compliment that they could ever give me. And, and so we're we're in a great place. We're um, hitting record numbers on our the money that we've raised and the wishes that we're granting. And um in our little bubble of the Make a Wish world, we we're recognized on you know a national front with different awards and stuff. And it's and it's truly because of the team. It's because of the team and the and and how they work now. They don't work in silos. We you know I said out of the gate we're all fundraisers and we're all wish granters. So it doesn't matter if you work in administration, if you work in fundraising, or if you work in mission. Anybody you interact with, whether it's a wish family or it's a volunteer or a donor, you represent Make-A-Wish and you can impact, you can impact them on a negative way or, or positive way. So let's try our best that all of our interactions are always positive.
1: Oh, so amazing. So for
2: transparency, I mean, Tracy and
1: I met because I'm on the board of America's thrift stores, which is a very proud mm-hmm. partner of Make-A-Wish and it's the leading thrift provider out in the South East. And one of the things about it is, you know, it's, um, being very socially and environmentally conscious and giving back to communities, um, you know, I think upwards of three million dollars a year to charities like yours, and you know, I know it's old school to you, Tracy, but a lot of folks who may not be familiar with the wishes, could you share, like, how do how do folks? Um, you know, get into the Make-A-Wish world, some of the wishes that you've granted are just off the chart. So, I just love for you to share how you've really created such hope for these young people.
2: Yes, yes. And I'm I'm so lucky to meet you through America's Thrift Store because they are just an incredible partner. We just, we can't say enough about that partnership. And um, and they are instrumental in the reason we're granting more wishes now is because of that relationship. But yes, um, I'm always, I'm surprised when people say, I've never heard of Make-A-Wish. I'm like, what? We're the like the second most loved nonprofit next to St. Jude, which, you know, you want to be second to St. Jude any day. But um, yeah, so our mission is together, we grant life-changing wishes for children with critical illnesses. And so the way our structure is, we're a federated system. And so each chapter, we're the Alabama chapter, we're our own 501c3. So our board is here in Alabama, staff are here in Alabama. But then we have this national um, infrastructure and that we're all, um The chapters are all part of Make-A-Wish America. Make-A-Wish America helps us with our our KPIs and our IT and our branding and the eligibility requirements. We have a team of um, medical professionals from all over the U.S. They're the ones that set the eligibility and that sort of thing. So we grant wishes for children that have critical illnesses. And that means a lot of times people think that we grant wishes for children that it's their last wish. And many times it is. But the large majority of our children beat their disease and they go on and live healthy lives. They beat their leukemia or their cancer diagnosis or whatever the treatment is. But their illness is a situation where it is fragile enough that they could possibly pass away. And so that's where we don't use the word terminal illness. We use critical illnesses because a lot of these children are not terminal. And there's actually a study out there that has shown they took a group of kids that had similar diagnosis some had got a wish, some didn't. And the ones that received a wish actually had less hospital stays, less ER visits, responded to their treatment better. So we really feel like a wish isn't just a nice thing, but it is absolutely an important part of the medical continuum and it should be part of that medical journey. And so it's incredible. I mean, Make-A-Wish America, we've granted over 300,000 wishes across the U.S. Here in Alabama, we've granted over a thousand. We've only been established in Alabama since 2012. And um, during COVID, you know, we had to pivot a little. We couldn't do large gatherings and travel. So the children, many of them rediscovered their wishes and they just came up with some incredible wishes. And so through that discovery process, we would talk to them about all sorts of things. What do you like to do? What do you like to see? And so we would go through that and they come up with, you met one of them that Kimberly's greenhouse. We've had wishes that a a girl wanted braces. Her family couldn't afford braces. So we provided braces. We had uh, puppy wishes and wishes for college tuition. I mean, just all sorts of things where, traditionally most of our wishes are travel wishes but since they weren't able to travel now we have all these what we call to have wishes and these kids have come up with incredible wishes that will stay with them for a very long time
1: it's uh, it's it's so moving i mean you can't not help but not cry really tears of joy because it was just yeah. so, so impactful and for these parents you know who are doing everything that they can you know i could see in her mom's face how much it meant to her you know it, it, this I'd love to understand you're very upbeat, Tracy, but emotionally it can be tough, you know, and you lose a child and what have you. Talk to us about how you stay resilient, how you handle that, because obviously you want to stay light to support
2: those you care most about, but that can be really challenging. It really can. And it seems like, it seems like for whatever reason, it comes in waves. And so we will be doing fine. And then within a week we'll hear, you know, we lost three or four children and it's, it's so tough and it is really tough on our mission team because they're the ones that, you know, I know a handful of the families, they, they talk to them seven days a week. They are friends with the family. They get to know them and it is, it's tough. It is so tough. And And, you know, these families, they don't get a break 24-7. They just don't get a break. And they're, you know, some parents I've talked to where they'll tell me, well, their child was in the hospital for three years and never, you know, stepped foot outside the hospital. And if it's a family that has multiple children, then the family's divided and one parent's staying home with other children where the the other parent's staying home. And it's just the stress that. A child with a childhood illness has on a family is incredible. And that's why it's so important that whenever we do a wish, it's absolutely about the wish kid, but it's just as much about the wish family as well. So we always pay attention to the sibling. If it's a travel wish, you know, the whole family comes and, you know, we cover all the costs. If it's, um, even if it's a wish, like a playhouse wish and there's siblings there, we all always make a point to give that sibling it some attention a toy or something to make sure it's an experience for the entire family but these these parents the resiliency they have and we have many of these families that have lost children and they're still very involved with our organization and they still share the story and so many of them will say the wish is one of the fondest memories they have with their child the ones that have lost their children and it was the wish that keeps them going and it it I mean, I've heard that over and over, and so when we have those tough days, we always we remember that, and we remember those families, and and we always say we've got to do it for all these other children. You know, there are there are literally hundreds, literally thousands of kids right now waiting on a wish across the U.S., and we said we've got to keep going for them, and we've got to do it in memory of all these other children that um, didn't make it, and and that keeps us going. But yeah, I'll admit it, it's tough, and and. If you ever follow our social media, you'll see we have a lot of fun. <laughs> and a lot of that fun is to blow off that steam because it it's, a, it's an emotional struggle. It's, it's tough.
1: Yeah. I, I really appreciate that and being so open with it and, you know, mm-hmm. just the humanity of it. And I think giving the transparency um, for folks to be able, if they have lost a child to think about what was so fabulous is I can just feel it warms the hearts. Mm-hmm. Um, for, so I don't forget Tracy, for folks who want to support and learn more, where can they go um, on the web?
2: So the best thing to do is go to wish.org. You know, we all are different chapters. So if you go to wish.org and say you're in New York, then you can see the New York chapters information there. If you're here in Alabama, where I am, you can go there. So on wish.org, it'll say, find your local chapter. And then from there, it'll direct you to your, um, your local chapter. And then of course, we all have Facebook pages. Ours is um, Make a Wish Alabama, but again, we have Make a Wish America, and that's that's our national organization that can kind of filter you to the right chapter in your area.
1: Yeah, no, I love it, and yeah. I love folks. If you can, uh, if it's an interest, it's a great way to support folks locally and to create connection with folks who um, who I know I know would, would warmly welcome the support. Um, Tracy, let's stay on the career development because okay. you know I I worked a bit in a nonprofit again most. Moving, fulfilling thing for me. Talk about um, trade-offs. How people might think about it. When to go into a nonprofit? Just curious. Any career advice or suggestions you might have for folks, whether they're new in uh, to the the workforce or perhaps they've had a long career already.
2: Well, I probably talk to at least one to two people a month that reach out to me and say, "Hey, I want to get into non- nonprofit." They may be new in school and you know looking for a career. Um, Ideas, or they may be a seasoned professional and wanting to make a shift. and And I think working in nonprofit is probably one of the best kept secrets out there that people don't because so, so many people don't realize. You know, it is it's 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 an industry. I mean, you got the corporate, you've got the for profit industry, you have nonprofit, and then you have the government industry. And so, the nonprofit industry is an incredibly valuable, um, especially here in. uh the U.S. and we fill gaps what the corporate sector and the government sector don't do we're the ones that come in and, and, and fill those gaps and so it's an incredible um, opportunity and, and I talk to people all the time that they're like okay I'm in my 50s I'm looking back going what have I done with my life you know I've been chained to a desk all this whole, what am I doing to make a difference I want to make a difference and and that's the way you do it is through nonprofits. and and so a lot of times I tell people if you want to get into it the the younger ones coming out of college it's so hard to define, you know, what roles there are, but just, just find something that is an opportunity for for you to get your foot in the door and then get in there and hustle and prove yourself. And it's because then you'll learn, you know, you don't go to, you don't go to college to be a wish granter, (laughs) but you know, there's no, there are no like, but you get in there and that's what we, we interview and hire for the right person that has the right personality and the right hustle and the right fortitude and understands the importance of a culture and working as a team. And once you have all those things, we can teach you how to, you know, be in in the nonprofit world and whatever portion it is. And so that's what I encourage people to do. And then those that are seasoned, I talk talk to many all the time, and I always say to them, well, really look at what you do in, in the corporate world and look at those transferable skills and think of it that way. Because you know, running a nonprofit is running a business. And um, we, you know, we have audits, we have operational standards. We have all of the things that a company has. We have strategic planning. We do three and five year long-term planning. It's just, it's running a business. The difference is we don't have, um, A profit, And so um, it's, it's very similar. So a lot of friends that I've talked to over the years that wanted to make that transition, they, you know, they didn't know where to start. And I always say, well, look at what you do, look at your transferable skills and craft your resume around those skills that are transferable to show those nonprofits that, yeah, I'm doing that same thing. I'm just doing it in the corporate world.
1: Yeah, I love it. I want to echo that for folks who are in the private sector. There's a lot of skills you might take for granted because in the nonprofit sector, there's a lot of heart, a lot of passion, Mm -hmm. mission focus, but not always some of the process or strategic kind of skills that you have to have in business and they're sorely needed. So I'm a big fan of really marrying the two. And then for the folks in private sector, something to think about is just, you know, you think about a make a wish such clear Purpose, such clear sense of why it matters and to be able to create that for employees. I think particularly with the next generations, they really Mm -hmm. care about that. And, you know, yeah, we all got work to do, but but if you think about it, adding up to being part of something far bigger than any one of us um, that's really moving. And I think the the private sector folks that figure that out, I think will create uh, more loyal, more engaged uh, workforces. Um, okay, we could go on forever on this. Let's segue to our okay. favorite Say It Skillfully part of this show. So, Tracy, uh, do you have a tough conversation or a sensitive situation I might help you out with?
2: All right. So, yes, i thought about this, and this is what I was thinking about. So, a lot of times um, I've had this conversation before, and I would love your input and guidance on it. So, so here at Make-A-Wish Alabama, you know, we're, we're fairly small. We're only a, a group of 15. So there's not an opportunity for a lot of upward mobility. And most nonprofits that I worked worked with over the years, there's not, unless you skip over into the national office or you move to another chapter. But within your chapter, you know, most of them are very, you know, very small across the U.S. And so a lot of times I have incredible team members that come in and they're fantastic, but there's nowhere for them to move up and they want to move up or they want to try their hand at managing staff. And, and I always, they all know, I always say, and it, it pains me, but I learned this early on is I am more concerned about you finding your purpose and your goal personally. And if that means I have to lose you, then I just accept that. And I I appreciate, you know, what I I have you as long as I do, but I did the same thing. You know, I've I've worked for seven or eight, I think different nonprofits. So I get, I get it when someone, you know, is hungry for more. And so, but, but it's, But I hate that we don't have opportunities for them. So there are many times they're at a crossroads and they love where they work. They love the culture. They love the environment. But they also know their career path needs to take them somewhere else. And so I always struggle with making sure they understand that I want them to stay and I appreciate their value here. But I also understand if they need to move on and look for other opportunities. And I don't know if I'm saying that right when I say that, because, you know, that's a slippery slope. If you say it the wrong way, it could discourage them. And they think, well, you don't appreciate me. You want me to leave. (laughs) And it's not that at all. It's just I've been there. And I know if you're hungry for more and it's not here as much as you love your job, it's okay. It's okay because, you know, every pretty much every position I've had, someone has recruited me away. And so, you know, they would be pretty hypocritical if if I wasn't supportive of someone who said, if we can't meet your, your career path needs here, well, let's talk about it. It's okay. As, as much as, you know, I want to go in the cry, in the corner and cry because I don't want to lose good staff. But I, I would love advice on how to talk that through with someone who is a very valuable employee, but you do hit a, a dead end of there's not much more you can offer them.
1: Yeah. Ugh, I love that you bring that up. I just want to point out for listeners, hallmark of great leader is when, the leader really shows that they want the right thing for the individual. And I've ha- also had bosses, leaders who have said, you know, I would never want to lose you. If that's the right thing for you, I fully support it. And that takes a big person to do that. Mm-hmm. So kudos to you, Tracy, for recognizing that. Um, so as folks know, I think the first step is just always like what's going on within, you know, and it, and it sounds mm-hmm. like you, you know, you've, you know, you see it very clearly that, uh, it, it it can't necessarily be a win for them to stay if they have another opportunity, and I think you're just being good relationship with yourself, which is that you want the best for them, and know that, and that that's such mm-hmm. a powerful place to be because as you're as you're exuding that that they come up and they realize that like, Tracy wants what's best for me, so that's the mm-hmm. first thing, and then the, in the other person's shoes, I think, because you have you know the broader business background saying, well, what I'm hearing is, and you just lay it out as a fairly neutral. I'm hearing you really want this and you want to grow here and right. And then it's just, let me just share what I've got here. And I want you to know that if I could do absolutely anything to have you stay, I want you to stay. So just, you know, I can't imagine people would misinterpret you, JC, but I think Mm -hmm. just being explicit, I would love to find you just a way for you to stay. I would also not be doing my job right as someone who cares about you by not encouraging you to do what you think is the right thing for you.
0: Mm. And, oh, like and pointing
1: that. out the tension on that is great. I also want to offer you, because the young people are creative, and say, look, at this is how you've been working, but this doesn't mean we work this way forever. Is there a way to create a management opportunity through partners? Is there another way that they could perhaps uh, amp up and get into some of the areas activity that you want that maybe isn't a full-time staff position, but some other way of collaborating and task them Hmm. with being creative about how you might go about work differently. And that, you know, who knows what amazing things young people might come up with. Right. I like that. So, uh, so I'd offer that. And then I just, I think that, you know, if you're wondering what they're hearing, I always offer to folks, just say, Hey, I've said a lot. What are you hearing? Mm -hmm. You know, Tracy, I'm hearing. Okay, great. Now, how can I be supportive in you getting to the place that's right for you?
2: I like that. I love that. I'm definitely going to use that. Thank you. <laughs> I <laughs> well, love thank it. You. Thank you for
1: bringing it up. Um, you're such a saint. Okay, so let's um, let's bring this hope. I, um, you know, I know you're just constantly um, amping it up yourself as much as you're helping people. So I'd love you to share with listeners a particular area of growth that you're focused on for you.
2: Yes. So I'm always, always working to improve my leadership abilities. You know, we can all, you know, there's always room for improvement. So I'm always looking there. You know, you always self-analyze and go, oh, how, how could I handle that a little better? And also, you know, I'm in my mid fifties. And so, you know, when that happens, a lot of things are going on with your body. <laughs> so I'm really focused on my health right now. I focus on being stronger Eating healthier, being more active, because you know, when you hit that age, you realize I need you need to be healthy and stronger more than you have ever been. So looking at self-improvement on my leadership skills and also always working on how can I do better to, to live a healthier life. Yeah. So those are yeah. the areas I'm working on.
1: Oh yeah. I love that about it. And I just I just want to point out for folks, and Tracy had said it about humility, but what you what you're hearing folks is someone who has a humility and the self-confidence. I also quote, my beloved mentor and friend, Alan Mulally, that that is a killer combination, genuine humility with confidence, and that can really help lift a lot of people up. So um, Tracy, kudos for you, uh, well, thank you. for thank exuding you. that. I love thank it. Thank you. I, you know, I didn't ask you, do you have particular um, leaders, idols, or folks you look up to, whether you know them or not? I- I'm curious.
2: You know, I, you, well, of course, uh, I've listened to all these different podcasts and um, Simon's, I can never say his name, Cynic. Simon Cynic and Brene, I, I listen to them all the time, but I'll tell you one that was pivotal for me, who isn't really a leader, but Eckhart Tolle and um, just how he talks about ego. Um, and I don't even know if I'm pronouncing his last name right. He is more of an inspirational um writer. And my mother gave me his book, New Earth, which I think is a very odd title, but it really breaks down ego and how we all have it. And once you tune into that and tap into your ego and acknowledge when your ego is wearing its ugly head, you and you have self-awareness of that, it, it really does make you be a better person. And it also encourages you to live in the moment, live in the moment.
1: Yeah, I I, lo- I don't know if it's Tole, Tole, Eckhart Tolle. He is phenomenal. People, he is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. I totally agree with you on that, and love Simon Brene as well. Uh, as you've heard yourself, right, talking about all the stuff you've talked about, do you have a top takeaway from your from our little conversation?
2: I just love the fact one that you invited me because I'm you know I, I've been interviewed many many times, but nobody has asked me like in terms of a career pathway, like what what was it in your childhood that really drove you to that? And, I've, and people kid, like I said early on with me all the time about, oh, you should write a book. And I thought, but I've never really thought about it until right now, how you laid it out and how you navigated this conversation that I'm like, oh, that's why I'm the way I am. <laughs> so it was almost like a mini counseling session, Molly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just going to ask you, what was it like to actually share the journey? Did you feel like you were in counseling? Yeah. Well, there's a part I thought I may get a little over emotional, but I've just never really said all of that out loud. So thank you for letting me say it out loud.
1: Thank you for being so generous and so courageous and so real. And, you know, I love that you're modeling this because this is a big part of the show is I just want everyone listening to to think about, like, what is your story? Um, how might you share it and know that there's learning for, for everyone, you know, from, mm-hmm. from hearing what the difference is in creating, you know, more empathetic understanding around the world. Um, you know, I am just so grateful you've shared your journey. I'm so in awe of you and how you're part of the solution for so many families out there. You know how to reach me, Tracy, if I can be more helpful, you let me know. I'm, I'm cheering for you all the way and I want you to take good care.
2: Absolutely. Thank you, Molly. Can't wait to see you again.
1: Yeah. Can't be too soon. You take good care.
2: All right, you too.
1: Oh my gosh, can people like this, but the world is going to be better, folks. Keep the faith. My um, thought for the week, the way you respond to a situation has the power to change it. And that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Tracy's voice. Reflect on your own top takeaways and know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life.
3: Homelessness is a problem that's more costly to ignore than solve. The U.S. spends $12 billion a year responding, but resources alone aren't enough. I'd like you to know there are cities and counties proving what does work. Partnering with Community Solutions, a nonprofit I'm on the board of, more than 80 communities around the country are succeeding in ending homelessness, beginning with chronic and veteran homelessness. They convene local leaders around data and are changing how they work and spend their resources, so homelessness becomes rare. More than half have already reduced the number of people experiencing chronic and veteran homelessness with commitment to get to zero. What can you do? Visit wwwbuilt 40org and see whether your community is engaged. Contact your mayor and ask, do you know the number of people experiencing homelessness in real time? Do you know every homeless person by name? What are you doing to drive measurable reductions in homelessness? Please challenge the fiction that says homelessness is an intractable problem.